electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, Apple pulling back the curtain on its new products, but tech guru Dan Niles is not sold. He is shorting the stock. Is that even allowed? An AI summit unlike any other tech's most powerful titans. Head to D.C. We've got a sneak preview. Sticker shock? Maybe. How the UAW standoff with Detroit's Big Three could help turbocharge auto inflation. Off the shelves, your favorite cold medicines may soon be gone after a shock FDA finding. This is a story you have got to hear to believe, and it involves the FDA. Plus, hackers bring a casino giant to its knees. What other companies could be dangerously at risk? And out for the season, a brutal injury for Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers. Also could have a big financial tab. Wait till you hear who may have to pick it up. All that and much more. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Hi, everybody, and good Tuesday evening. I'm Brian Sullivan. All that ahead, but first up on Last Call, the end is nigh, at least for fossil fuels. So says the International Energy Agency. In a new report, the IEA forecasts the demand for oil, natural gas, and coal will all peak before 2030. IEA Director Fatih Barol writes in an opinion piece in the Financial Times, quote, Our latest projections show that the growth of electric vehicles around the world, especially in China, means oil demand is on course to peak before 2030. He also writes about natural gas demand, saying, quote, The golden age of gas, which we called in 2011, is nearing an end, with demand in advanced economies set to fall away later this decade. The group says that electric car adoption and the growth of solar and wind is the main reason for the projected decline. Now, if this does happen, it will be the first time that peaks in demand can be seen for the big three of fossil fuels. Now, in the opinion piece, Burrell acknowledges the world will still need investments in oil and gas projects for years to come, in part because declines from existing oil and gas fields can be steep. They drain. But he adds that this IEA call for peak demand in just seven years, quote, undercuts calls from some quarters to increase spending on new oil and gas projects, which he says wouldn't be a bad thing because of their risks to the climate to the planet. Now, this happened on a day where the price of oil hit nearly 90 bucks a barrel here, more than that overseas. Gasoline demand, by the way, in America is up. Natural gas demand globally hitting records around the world. And get this, even Europe's gasoline demand, it's rising despite their much faster shift to electric vehicles. So let's kick off tonight, talk about this big, bold call from the IEA and what some oil and gas experts think about it. Joining us is EQT President and CEO Toby Rice. They are America's largest natural gas producer, as well as Rapidan Energy Group President Bob McNally. Toby, start with you. Your take on this big, bold call from the IEA. Well, Sully, I think one of the biggest misconceptions begins with a misunderstanding on how much energy demand there is in this world. And when 
solar and wind cannot meet that demand. The world is going to use coal and solar solar's inability to meet the world demand for energy has caused coal emissions just in the last 12 months to exceed over 500 million tons. That wipes out the entire U.S. renewable investments that we've made over the last 15 years. So we do not have the solution to replace fossil fuels. It's very difficult to predict. The IEA has gotten it, uh, has been challenged with their forecasts uh, in just five months. They've increased their oil demand. Um, and one of their big assumptions that they've made in their often cited uh, net zero plan is that coal demand is going to decrease by 8% annually on just that from 2020 to 2030 on just that one assumption alone. We are already behind over 3 billion tons. So not keeping up with the progress. Um, it's it's very concerning to see these type of numbers. It's very difficult yeah. to forecast. But when you look at the realities of what we're seeing, we're being, burning more coal now in this world than we ever have before in history. And the only time we've ever seen a replacement of energy is when the oil and gas industry stepped up and replaced the world's de demand for whale oil and replaced it with a better energy solution, which is hydrocarbons. And Bob, there's a lot we don't know. We're waiting on the IEA's actual report. This was an opinion piece with snippets in the Financial Times. I know and like and respect Dr. Barola. I'm sure you do too as well. Uh, but what do you make of this call? Because listen, you can make this call if you want. Well, to Toby's point, you're raising your own demand estimates in the next couple of years, and yet you're seeing the peak in just, let's call it not even seven years, six years from now, effectively. Yeah, Brian. So I've been watching these forecasts for over 30 years. And starting in 2020, the IEA departed from years, decades of conventional energy modeling under enormous political pressure. And they decided to adopt this peak demand view. Now, it was early in the early 2030s until today. It looks like they're going to go a little bit before 2030. But they made this leap of faith in 2020. Uh, they canceled. They literally don't produce the old forecasts that we all relied on that show that oil demand, energy demand, hydrocarbon demand grows with GDP. Instead, they decided to adopt wishful thinking about efficiency gains in ICE cars, gasoline cars in the near term, mm -hmm. and then EV penetration in the long term. They didn't present evidence then. They haven't now. And my firm, we, we watch the politics, the policy very closely. We track it. We see no evidence to forecast as your base case a peak in demand. I would say, Brian, it's more likely that the idea of peak demand will itself peak more likely when do, we do get out of this Do you think it's more than of a, of a, back to you, Bob, do you think this report, which again, we have to see and read, but we've seen and, and read others, is more to try to steer policy direction. If you tell somebody, hey, we're going to have peak everything, you're going to have to reduce your investment in the longer term, that maybe they will follow that and your, your projection will become, I project that I'm going to have sushi for dinner. Guess what? I'm going to go and maybe have sushi for dinner. You become the projection. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Go back to 2020 and Google what the environmental community was saying about their forecast. How dare you say that we're going to 120 million barrels a day? If you say we'll demand that, then we'll supply it and we'll cook the planet. You must stop saying that. 
So it was under that pressure that they literally canceled these forecasts and went to these more optimistic forecasts, look like we're getting to make it look like we're getting closer to the goal. It's purely political pressure. They didn't say anything but that they couldn't imagine a world in which we wouldn't get in greener. No, no analysis, no evidence whatsoever. We're still waiting for it. You know, uh, bring up that uh, pie chart, guys, by the way, of energy demand and, and supply in the Mid-Atlantic region today. And Toby, we've done this with your home region, New England. This is PJM. This is here in Mid-Atlantic, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, all the way over to Illinois in some cases. And I have a game I like to play. I've got a lot of very, very smart friends. A lot of them will lean very left. And I like to sit around, you know, dinner and say, what percentage of our power here in New Jersey is coming from renewables? And they'll usually say like, oh, I don't know, 40 percent, 30 percent, 50 percent. Well, today, it was about 5%. Nobody's knocking it. The growth curve is certainly there. We're going to need that. But today, in the Mid-Atlantic region, 90% of your electricity, if you ran the air conditioning or turned on the lights, came from gas, nuclear, coal. Now, we can argue that's a terrible thing for the planet, whatever you want. But I'm trying to prove a point, Toby, that the reality of what's happening on the ground is very different sometimes from what we hear, often at extremely high and intelligent levels. Yeah, the realities um, of the physics of what it takes to actually run a reliable, affordable, clean energy grid relies on reliable energy sources. That should not be surprising. And natural gas is the complement to renewables. And even if we add more renewables, we're still going to need more natural gas. In the East Coast, we've seen renewables increase 30%. Um, but we've still seen in that area, despite that growth yeah. in renewables, natural gas demand increase 10%. It's why projects like Mountain Valley Pipeline are so critical to this country's energy security and why we need to be doing more energy development here Can in the I, United quick, States. Toby, quick question, guys. Give me, give me one minute on this. Boston, Massachusetts, your home area, obviously importing a lot of nat gas, heating oil costs spiking again heading to winter. A lot of New Englanders use heating oil. We can say we want to use offshore wind, but the problem now is a lot of these wind farms are being canceled or even voted down due to higher rates, higher costs, public opposition. If you or the industry tried to get a natural gas pipeline from, say, upstate New York to Boston to cut down primarily, by the way, on things like cutting down trees and importing gas from Trinidad via large carbon spewing ships, could you get that done today? It would be incredibly difficult to do that. You know, Sully, unfortunately, we live in a world where it takes an act of Congress to get a pipeline built in this country. And we're talking about Mountain Valley Pipeline. Americans should be very concerned that this is the state of energy in this country. And that means that people in New England will have no choice yeah. but to burn wood, will have no choice but to burn oil. And that will cost them significantly. It'll, it'll cost them over $20 per million BTU for that energy where they can get natural gas that I'm selling next door in Pennsylvania for a cost of $3 to $4 per MCF. And, and, and sadly, it's, it's possible a lot of these giant wind farms, which are projected to power hundreds of thousands of homes, may never happen because of inflation, because of the Fed, and because of public opposition. Bob, Toby, a great discussion. Guys, thank you very much. Have a nice day. All right, by the way, some, some big news in energy just happening a couple of hours ago. The CEO of BP is out, resigning under pressure today. Companies saying that Bernard Looney admitted he had not been clear enough about past personal relationships with colleagues. Now, BP added last year it had investigated allegations from an anonymous source, quote, relating to Mr. Looney's conduct in respect of personal relationships with company colleagues. 
BP's board apparently knew of some of these previous relationships, but that recently surfaced new allegations against Looney made it clear he may have not told the whole truth in last year's investigation from a business angle. One wonders if Looney's departure could also be a harbinger of change in course for BP. Now, BP, of course, the most aggressive oil and gas company in the energy transition. But that strategy under Looney's tenure has been a bust, at least for shareholders. Company pursuing money losing projects over the past five years, ExxonMobil and Chevron shares each up more than 40 percent. BP down 11 percent in the same time. One wonders, could this mean that BP gets a new leader and then maybe goes in a similar road to Shell, which recently hired a new CEO who is pushing for more traditional and profitable oil and gas and other energy byproducts like the hydrogen plant we showed you live from Rotterdam a couple of months ago. All right, now to what happened inside the indexes and your money today. And while we did not see many big moves for the macro markets, hey, energy, the top dog, the sector rising over 2% today. The Dow fell a whopping 17 points, basically almost flat. Inside the S&P 500, the big winner of the day, Zion's Bank, up 7%. The big decliner, Oracle, oof, down 13 and a half. More on that drop later on in the hour. All right, we have got a lot to do on this busy Tuesday. And up next, he has timed Apple stock moves nearly perfectly recently. How famed tech investor Dan Niles feeling about today's new iPhone launch? Does he care? We'll ask it. Plus, why the standoff between the UAW and automakers may create a perfect storm for higher car prices. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back. Well, today was a big day for Apple. Not so much. It's investors. Apple unveiled the new iPhone 15. It's got some stuff like a new display, upgraded camera, et cetera, et cetera. It's also lighter than previous phones. Here's CEO Tim Cook. With the new A17 Pro, the fastest chip ever in a smartphone, a customizable action button, and our most pro camera system yet, featuring a 5X telephoto camera. These are the best and most capable iPhones we've ever made. Now, in addition to the phone, Apple rolled out a new version of its watch. There it is. 
In all, not a huge jump in technology, probably evolutionary more than revolutionary, and investors did not seem to care either. Apple stock actually fell today, although let's keep in mind, it's up nicely, 36% this year. Now, your next guest has been right of the money when it comes to Apple. In late August, he wrote that he is bullish on Apple in the short term, but remains bearish to the company in the long term. But last week, said that he's now selling Apple and that it's his firm's new largest single stock short. So how is he feeling after today's announcement? Joining us now is Dan Niles, founder and portfolio manager at the Satori Fund. Dan, good to have you on. Uh, investors didn't seem to care. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't around these launches. Do you have a take on the launch as it relates to the stock or does it not matter at all? Well, I mean, in the short term, what was interesting out of the launch is everybody was expecting them to raise iPhone prices by about $100 at the midpoint. And there was no raise. And so that was a little surprising because if you talk to Apple bulls, they will tell you, well, this is a price inelastic market, so you can charge whatever you want and people will buy an iPhone. But as soon as you saw that, if you looked at the stock, the stock dropped a quick buck because most, I think even the bulls are thinking it's going to be tough to get a lot of unit growth next year because a lot of people upgraded during COVID. And so you're going to count on Apple charging people more per phone, and now they're not doing that. So from a short-term basis, that was the interesting thing I got out of it. But from a long-term basis, everything I've written up on my website and that you referenced still stands, which is, I think, long-term, this is the most overvalued large-cap tech stock out there. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. You look at the revenue growth compared to its PE. So Apple's revenues grew 2% last year. They grew 1% this year. And you're going to pay a 28 PE for it. If you look at the S&P as an example, revenues are growing up 4%. You can get it for 21 times. If you look at comparables, uh, Meta is growing at 13% their revenues. PEs 23, Google's at eight, PEs 24 times. And if you take a longer term view, you can say, well, Apple's revenues are back to where they were in the June quarter of 2021. So two years ago, the PE has gone up 7%. During the same period of time, the PE for the market has actually gone down 7%. And if you look at comparables, Google, Microsoft, Meta, their multiples are down about seven to 11% but their revenues mm-hmm. are up 10 to 22%. So with Apple, you've been just sort of fortunate that, you know, people have an iPhone, the stock's been working, Warren Buffett owns it. And you look at the chart and you go, oh, everything must be great. You've got bulls talking about installed base going up a lot. And so you get comfortable with that, yeah. but the numbers keep going lower. You cut revenues for three consecutive quarters of earnings. Are you worried, Dan, are you, are you, okay, we're going to, we can argue, not argue you and I, but like investors can argue about demand and sales here in the United States. Are you worried about China? Because we had Kyle Bass on last week and we talked about how they've outlawed the iPhone for government workers. They've rolled out this new Huawei Mate 60 phone, which if you know China, if government workers are using it, a lot of other people, just normal citizens are going to feel very pressured to use the same phone. Kyle said he thought there's no way they're going to sell 45 million iPhones in China in the next 12 months or so, in part because the Huawei. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if you look at our note that we posted on September 6th to social media, we said Huawei's back 
And if you look at where Huawei was, they had about 16% of global smartphone market share in 2019. Then you had uh, the U.S. put sanctions against Huawei and that market share collapsed from that 16% down to, I think this last year, it was like a percent and a half or something. And so now they've got their first new flagship phone since 2019. And, you know, our estimation is they gained at least, Apple gained at least 5% share, you know, at the high end uh, from Huawei and the domestic brands gained the rest. And Huawei, all the indications we've gotten is that they're actually increasing the manufacturing of that phone. So you've got a big problem in that market coming up. And then in the U.S., mm -hmm. which is even more important, you could argue, you've got 40 million student loan repayments starting on October 1st. Yeah. That's going to be another issue in their biggest market. Never mind what's going on in China. Outside of, outside of Apple, or maybe not because of inflated iPhone prices, who knows? We get important inflation data tomorrow, the consumer price index. Your expectations, do you care? Absolutely, you have to care. And the reason is when you look at CPI, when you've had between 2 to 3% CPI, you've had a PE on the market of about 19 times. Today, that trailing PE is sitting at 21 times. So you could argue, and CPI, by the way, is you know above three. Now, the biggest driver of CPI over a longer period of time, to some degree, is energy prices. And you've seen uh, oil prices go from about 67 bucks in the middle of June to close to 90 today, mm -hmm. so up 30 percent. And that's not only going to just feed into gasoline, but it's going to feed into your food prices in terms yeah. of what it takes to get your apples to your supermarket, how much it makes to do plastics, heat your home, all of this stuff. And so you've had these very easy comparisons. Now the comparisons are going to get tougher. I think you're going to see, and I've said this for a while, you're going to see inflation stay higher for longer than what people anticipate. Yeah. And you and I haven't even talked about all the strikes going on with wages really putting upward pressure. Because we're, because we're going to talk about that in a, in a couple of minutes with a different guest, the former CEO of Ford. But, Dan, we appreciate your view. Critical thoughts. Appreciate it. All Thanks, right. Up, up next. Speaking of, if you thought car prices were expensive now, buckle up. Why costs could surge even if the UAW does not strike? People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back. The auto industry creeping closer and closer to one of the biggest strikes in American history. The UAW and the Big Three have less than three days now to strike a deal. If they don't, 146,000 union members could walk out on GM, Ford, and Stellantis. That is the parent company of Jeep and Dodge. The main sticking point, there are many, but the main one, of course, is pay. The UAW originally asking for raises of about 40%, but it reportedly has softened a bit down to the mid-30 percent range. The car companies were offering 10 plus a one-time bonus. Now, the UAW has other requests, but let's focus on the cost side. Because while labor is just a slice of the final cost of a car, 
With car prices constantly going higher the last couple of years, could this deal, when it's made, and it ultimately will be, be even more inflationary? Let's talk about it with former Ford CEO and CBC contributor Mark Fields. Mark, and I don't want to put you on the spot for exact numbers, and I know all cars and models and trucks, the F1, everything is different. I get it. But on a very rough back of the envelope, can you give us an idea as to what percentage of a car's cost is labor? Yeah, it, as you said, uh, Brian, it depends a bit. But if you had to generalize, it's probably anywhere between 10 and 12 percent of the cost of the vehicle. Obviously, the biggest cost being materials and then second biggest cost is R&D. So, you know, it's not the smallest piece, but, uh, you know, it's not inconsequential either. And to your point around this contract, if you look at past contracts, you know, past contracts, the last three or four you had anywhere from probably 8 to 10% uh, labor cost increases in there, which are manageable within the automakers because you work on efficiencies, you get additional language in the contract to allow more flexibility for the automakers to be more efficient. But at the levels that are being talked about from the UAW, from 45% now down to the mid-30s, and ultimately, even if you end up somewhere in the twenty low 20% range, the automakers can't. Uh, make enough efficiencies to make those costs away. So those will find their way into consumer prices. But it doesn't sound like it's going to be too bad because there's probably going to be a number, and we know they will ultimately get a deal. Let's say the number is 22%, 25%. I'm making that up, but they're, they're asking for you know 40 or 30. Car companies offering 10, so let's kind of split the difference. If the UAW signs a 25% pay increase deal over the next, number, I think it's four years, through the life of the contract, what do you think that would do? Is there a way to quantify that on, say, like an F-150? Well, it also depends, Brian, on what they agree to in terms of some of the, the non-labor costs. I mean, there's some biggies in there around pensions that they want, reinstatement of pensions and uh, retiree health care and things of that nature. So you're going to have to dig into those as well to kind of answer that question. Um, but, you know, you also mentioned something really important. You know, when an agreement is reached, remember, it's called a tentative agreement. That then needs to be approved by the rank and file. And, you know, with the UAW's more aggressive and transparent communication approach, uh, it may have the unintended consequence of, uh, for lack of a better term, unleashing the cracking of high expectations, which uh, may be difficult to corral when it comes time to well, get I, those I could, union votes. Yeah, and I could, it's a great point. I could argue, though, Mark, that the kraken, so to speak, to your point, has already been unleashed in the, in the frame of, Pilots at all these air, airlines getting 40% jumps, UPS getting 40% jumps, dock workers and shore workers at ports in California getting big jumps. I mean, I would say the UAW is probably just looking around and going, all right, organized labor is doing pretty well. Why shouldn't we? And I don't blame them. Well, listen, you're, you're right. I mean, the UAW has always considered themselves the benchmark across the union world. Uh, and anything less is, is, is not going to let them be the benchmark. But, you know, Brian, you can't talk about, you know, the uh, Sean Fain, the union leader, talks a lot about economic and social justice, which is all fair and valid. But you can't do that without including competitive and consumer realities. And, you know, at the end of the day, car prices will go up because the automakers are going to have to pay more because they can't plead property over the last few years. But they got to do it in such a way that rewards workers but, you know, doesn't hugely make them uncompetitive, because if not, 
We could end up back where we were in 2008. You saw what happened with GM and Chrysler. And that well, well, you know, we, we had uh, Sean Fain on the show last week. I don't know if you were able to see the interview, but he said something kind of kind of hearkening back to Henry Ford's days when Henry Ford says, I want my workers to be able to afford afford. Basically, I'm going to pay them enough that they can buy the product that they are making. And Fain effectively said a lot of our workers are not able now to buy some of these products. Now, there, I know I'm sure there's friends and family discounts. They're probably not paying what I would pay if I just walked onto a dealership. But do you think that's true? I mean, because I could see it. I mean, F-150s, $80,000 now. Yeah, I mean, those are the top end models. Uh, you know, when you look at the average uh, price of a vehicle in the industry right now, you know, it's about $45,000. And so when you break it down, you literally need to make somewhere between eighty dollars and $100,000 to afford a new car right now, even with the higher interest mm-hmm. rates. And when you look at some of these contracts and some of the numbers the automakers have been putting out, they say, hey, listen, you know, what we're proposing in this contract will, you know, make the average worker earn potentially, you know, above $100,000. But, you know, it's a good point. You want to make sure that the workers can, uh, can, can buy your products. Uh, but the bottom line is you're going to see higher mm-hmm. prices, just like you're going to see Higher prices to ship a UPS, you know, package yeah. or take a, take a, you know, a plane ticket. You're going to see higher car prices. Yeah. By the way, Hostess just got bought for five and a half billion yesterday, Mark. I don't know if you saw that. I mean, that's Twinkie inflation right there. If you don't think those private equity buyers are going to make that back up on the on the ding dongs, you know, there's going to be inflation everywhere. I'm only making a slight joke. Mark Fields, appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right, by the way, speaking of the UAW, quick programming note, Sean Fain, who we just referenced, will be on Squawk Box tomorrow, 8.15 a.m. Eastern time, less than 48 hours before that strike deadline. All right, still ahead. What do Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates have in common besides all being bazillionaires? Well, they're all going to be on Capitol Hill tomorrow for a blockbuster summit on AI, and we'll give you a sneak peek next All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, the IPO market getting hotter. Shoemaker Birkenstock now officially filing for its public offering. The Deadhead's favorite sandal company will list on the NYSE. According to filings, Birkenstock posted over $1.3 billion in sales last year. Next up, from one IPO to another, Arm reportedly will price its IPO at the top end of its range or even higher. That high end is at 51 bucks a share. It's coming after Arms IPO reported to be 10 times oversubscribed, leading to orders being halted today. It's a semiconductor giant, and it's expected to be trading on the NASDAQ as of Thursday. All right, well, what is sure to be a big story tomorrow? Some of the titans of tech are meeting in D.C. to talk AI. CNBC Washington correspondent Emily Wilkins with what we can expect. Emily. Well, Brian, senators are preparing for, an a, for a blockbuster AI hearing form tomorrow with some of the top tech CEOs headed to Capitol Hill. The all-hands-on-deck meeting will feature Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Sam Altman, and other tech and AI giants, as well as advocates from civil rights groups and unions. The all-day event is meant to educate lawmakers on the technology behind AI, but the real legislative work is already started in committees. The Senate Judiciary and Commerce 
panels held hearings this afternoon on AI. Senator Richard Blumenthal and Senator Josh Hawley, the top Democrat and Republican on a key subcommittee, have put out framework for the future of AI bills. That includes an independent oversight body for AI models and the companies that develop them. Microsoft President Brad Smith, who addressed lawmakers on AI this afternoon, said Congress needs to treat AI models differently based on risk. There should be oversight by an independent agency of, say, the, the most advanced models at the same time that other agencies are also responsible for how applications use AI, for example, to decide whether you and I are going to get a loan or a mortgage for our house. In addition to setting up an independent oversight body to hold companies accountable if they violate privacy or cause harm, the framework also calls for limiting the transfer of AI to foreign countries and ensuring consumers know when they are interacting with AI. Smith said he will speak at tomorrow's forum in an afternoon session on policy. A three-hour session starting at 10 a.m. will delve into the technology. Brian? Emily Wilkins, live in D.C. Thank you very much. And speaking of D.C., a quick programming note. Tune in to Last Call tomorrow night. We're going to chat with Texas Senator Ted Cruz. He should be at that AI summit and will surely have much to say on it and big tech's big power. Ted Cruz tomorrow night here on Last Call. All right. Time now for our quicker than the ticker. All the best of the rest, plus a very lucky cat. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Here's the story of a $3.2 million house. Yeah, the Brady Bunch house in L.A. just sold for that price to a fan of the show. But HDTV, it bought the house five years ago for $3.5 million. U.S. astronaut Frank Rubio just broke a record for the longest space mission for an American ever. Rubio has been in a low Earth orbit for more than 355 days, supposed to come back down to Earth on September 27th. The wine literally flowing in Portugal. Two tanks of wine owned by Levira Distillery in a small town gave way, and nearly 600,000 gallons of sweet wine flowed through the streets. McDonald's getting rid of those self-service soda machines, but not till 2032. Fast food chain says that consumer behavior has changed since the pandemic. More people turning to drive-through and delivery. And a cat almost lost one or all of its nine lives. Look at this. Doorbell camera caught a three-year-old cat, appropriately named ER, startling a bear in Pennsylvania. That was a lucky cat. All right, coming up, a casino giant rocked by a paralyzing cyber attack, and the threat does not end there. More on this story next. Normally we do a lot of stories to watch list today. It's just one, because this one's kind of a really big and bizarre story that may impact millions of you and your kids come cold and allergy season. Get this. By a vote of 16 to 0, the FDA determined a key ingredient to be ineffective at fixing your congestion despite years and decades of claims that it did. Now, the ingredient is the primary factor in ultra-popular medicines like NyQuil. Benadryl, Sudafed, and more. And now the FDA may begin a process that actually pulls those products from the store. They may not, but apparently it's not off the table. Now, the ingredient is called phenylephrine, and it's been around for decades. And yet now the FDA, apparently after some actual testing, 16 to 0, voted that phenylephrine is not effective at doing anything about your congestion. 
Shares of Procter & Gamble, J&J, Kenview, that's J&J's new company, Halion, all falling on the news today. I mean, folks, think about this. These are some of the most widely used over-the-counter medications in the United States for decades. People rely on them. And now the FDA, 16 to 0, has come out and said, no, don't really do anything, actually. Hmm, at least the key ingredient. It's a story we're going to do more on tomorrow, I'm sure. That's, that's weird. Meantime, the FBI is now assisting in the investigation of a brazen and far-reaching cyber attack on MGM resorts. Now, the incident began Sunday. Computer systems went offline at MGM properties on the Vegas Strip, including hotels like the Bellagio, Aria, and Mandalay Bay. The attack even took down the MGM website, including booking systems, along with casino slot machines and sports betting kiosks. Also, get this. Guests had trouble accessing their rooms with digital keys. And according to reports, some were even locked out because of the hack. Now, as of this moment, the MGM website is still offline with a we are currently unavailable message. In a statement yesterday, MGM said they did shut down their systems to protect data, but that the resorts remain operational. This is the second cybersecurity issue the company has faced in recent years, 2019, MGM confirmed that it was the victim of a data breach, which affected about 10 million of you. Stock is down 4% in the last two days. So how big of a risk are cybersecurity incidents like this for you? What other kind of companies could be vulnerable? Let's bring in our panel. Howard Stutz is the Nevada Independent Reporter on Gaming and Tourism. And David Kennedy, a cybersecurity expert and the founder and CEO of Trusted Sec. Kennedy has also testified before the Congress on national security issues. Howard, I'm going to start with you, though. So you're saying to me, because if I use a digital key like millions of people now do and I want to go back up to my room, I couldn't get in. That's apparently what happened uh, in the last, you know, since starting yesterday. And they, you know, they said they went out there and now they've keyed all the rooms so that people are able to get in. Uh, this is just ongoing. It's been going on now that we're, we're in the second day of it. It actually started, it looked like Sunday night. And then MGM announced uh, Monday morning that, you know, what you said, they were, they were under some type of cyber attack. They, um, they alerted federal th- alert authorities, obviously the FBI, Nevada gaming regulators, and uh, they've been managing their way through it. And I was I was over there yesterday. Uh, you, I mean, MGM was the first resort on the strip, first company on the strip to have paid parking. All the parking, <laughs> there's no paid parking right now. You just drove right in. So it's very, you know, it's affecting a lot of the different areas for MGM. And it's not just Vegas. Remember, MGM has casinos, as you're showing, in Maryland, Ohio, and New York, uh, Atlantic City. All those casinos are are, are being affected by this, uh, yeah. this, this and, attack. And, and well. from what I understand, Howard, if you won money, all the slot machines, everything now is digital. They put the stuff on a card. If you won money, woohoo! you want to go get cashed out. A lot of people couldn't or had to wait a long time. It was bizarre. You know, they, they had a lot of machines had taped over, you know, out of order on the voucher uh, where you would feed in your, your ticket and ticket out or your cash. But you couldn't cash out and you're waiting for hand pays and which were, were a, an attendant would come over and pay you, you know, what you wrote. There were some machines people just said, forget it and left. They left like a dollar ninety five on the on yeah. the machine. There's one guy I talked to at X, at Excalibur. He had fifteen hundred dollars on that machine. He'd been sitting there a half hour and he said, I'm not going anywhere. So, yeah, this is <laughs> this is the thing they've been dealing with here for a couple of days now. I bet not. Uh, David, um, 
Is this likely a ransomware attack? Basically, we're just going to keep holding you hostage, at least, or keep messing with you until you pay us money. Otherwise, what else they want? Yeah, this has all the hallmarks of a ransomware event. Uh, the weekend uh, is usually when ransomware folks kick it off to, because most of the IT folks, all the security folks are all, you know, um, at home and it causes pandemonium and mayhem. And so we usually see, you know, Saturday, Sunday being kind of the kickoff time for these. And then from there, you know, trying to do the extortion. And they're not just shutting down systems. They also steal data. So they'll steal, you know, credit card numbers, social security numbers, driver's license information, personal information, any intellectual property. And then they hold that for ransom as well. So even if you're able to recover, you still need to pay the ransom if you don't want them to release the actual data. So ransomware groups are, are problematic for every organization out there right now, uh, not just casinos. But, you know, I think everybody expects casinos to be Ocean's Eleven, super secure, uh, where they really consider themselves more hospitality. And while they might have good physical security, their cybersecurity is often lacking in a number of areas uh, and they're really vulnerable. And I'm surprised something like this hasn't happened in the extent it has with MGM to all of the other brands as well. Yeah. But it's definitely they're on notice at the moment. Oh, on a macro level, David, I was I tweeted out a story X to whatever you call it I, last night from The Atlantic magazine, actually, which had a big piece on how hackers are now coming for your cars, primarily electric vehicles, because the systems they can actually access your Spotify, maybe some of your accounts, or just parts of the car itself. And I kind of only half joked, I'm just going to buy a 1999 Toyota Land Cruiser, update the stereo, and let it ride. Is there any part now? So, so it's now it's it was just our computers. Now it's our hotels. Now it's going to be our cars. Is there any part of our life that is not immune to this type of Stuff. I almost said something else. We've seen we've seen technology really change every aspect of our life, right? I mean, our cars are obviously much more smarter. Uh, there was a, a a hack that happened a number of years ago from security researchers that were able to take a car and drive it off the road and take complete control over it. You know, these cars now have infotainment systems, they have interconnectivity with servers. You know, uh, autopilot, for example, or full full self driving. You know, it's constantly communicating and reporting data telemetry back up to Tesla and its its server infrastructures. All the other cars are doing the same things. They have, you know, automatic updates that can push down from the, you know, cloud infrastructure that can impact the cars. Uh, it's integrated everywhere, and technology continues to get more and more complex, which is where the attackers are going. You know, you know, ten years ago we would laugh at ransomware because they were targeting really yeah. small people, individuals. Now they're going after some of the largest companies in the world with some of the highest levels of sophistication out there, incomparable to nation states like China, Russia, and North Korea. Uh, that's really damaging, and they have a lot of impact. I mean, we deal with hundreds of ransomware events a year, uh, paying millions and millions of dollars. They're making tons of money. If this was a ransomware and MGM yeah. paid, I guarantee you might have been one of the largest uh, payments probably in, in, in ransomware history, if that's the case. And, and by the way, got to be another form of inflation, right? Because all this lost money, it's got to go somewhere. The casinos aren't going to eat it. The car companies aren't going to eat it. And nobody else, is gonna, the credit card companies aren't going to eat it. They're going to pass it on David and Howard. Uh, good conversation, guys. Good luck out there out west. Thank you. Right. Thanks so much. All right, coming up, the toll of a tendon tear. Aaron Rodgers, four plays in, out for the season. So who pays for it? It's next. All right, here's the good news. Monday Night Football is back, and it was a blockbuster across all of ESPN platforms last night with 22.6 million people watching the New York Jets mount an epic and improbable comeback against the Buffalo Bills, and that was a record for the broadcast. But despite the win, overall, probably a pretty terrible night for the Jets and their fans. New Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers in his first series of his first game 
of his first new team in nearly 20 years, will miss the season and maybe more. Rodgers tore his Achilles tendon after just the fourth snap. Now, on top of obvious health concerns for the 39-year-old QB, let's be honest, football's a business. So there are major financial implications for Rodgers' season-ending injury. Star quarterback signed a new two-year, $75 million deal with the Jets just last month. The contract fully guaranteed. So are the Jets on the hook for the whole $75 million, or do they have options? Let's talk about it with sports business analyst Joe Pompliano, investor at Pomp Investments, host the Joe Pomp Show. And let's all hope, by the way, that Rodgers can make a comeback next year, have one of those two years, you know, done. But let's say he also can't. He's 39. His Achilles tendon has been torn. How much are the Jets, are they going to pay him the whole $75 million? Thanks for having me, Brian. So there's a few different ways that we can look at this, but I think the best way to look at it is through the lens of insurance. And that's because virtually everything you see in professional sports has some level of insurance tied to it. If you or I go to a game, for example, obviously the arena or the stadium is insured by the team. Uh, Fan injuries at a game is insured by the team. The personal trainers or the athletic trainers that go on the field, they have insurance liability-wise in case they make a mistake. But when it comes to players, there are specific types of insurance that apply too. So think about college players. Caleb Williams is the starting quarterback at USC. I can almost guarantee you that he has a loss of value insurance policy in place because he knows he's going to be the number one overall pick in the draft. And that's a $25 million signing bonus he would have to give up if he gets hurt. So he gets insurance in place in case he has a loss of value. But this also applies to the teams. So disability insurance in sports is much more common in leagues like the NBA or MLB because the contracts are guaranteed. In football and the NFL specifically, if a player gets hurt, in a lot of instances, the team can just cut them and they don't owe them anything. But Rodgers, like you just mentioned, has $75 million in guaranteed money, even if he gets hurt. Yeah. So we don't know if the Jets signed an insurance policy or not, but most likely they probably did. That offers them some loss of value insurance between 50 to 80% of his contract. Yeah, and by the way, I don't know Rodgers, but just given his nature, I, I, I'm sure he'd rather be on the field playing and not collecting money to do nothing. He's going to get paid either way. He wants to play. He ran out. I mean, he was like, looked like new, you know, sort of new vigor for the quarterback. He looked, let's be honest, a little bit bored in Green Bay the last couple of years. There he is running out with the American flag. But this is not just a blow to Rodgers and the Jets. This is the fans. This is concessions. This is, now their defense looked pretty good. This is playoff hopes. There's a lot of other second derivative things, Joe, I think, that are going to be impacted by this, unfortunately. Yeah, obviously the Rodgers injury is a bummer and I hope he gets better and I hope he comes back next year and it takes a shot at the Jets Super Bowl hopes. But I think the biggest loser is actually the NFL. If you think about what's happened over the last six or seven months, it's been nonstop Aaron Rodgers talk during the offseason. Every sports show, every radio show, Hard Knocks was with the Jets. It's a big business for the NFL. You just mentioned earlier they had more than 22 million viewers for the game last night alone. That was the most in Monday night football history. Right. So this is a big business for the NFL. And it's sad for them to see that Rodgers is going to be out for the rest of the year. It is. And I was driving home listening to the game on the radio. Joe, he said he's down and he's not getting up. And then you heard about it was just unbelievable. Kind of Jets ish in a way. I hate to say that, but uh, let's hope he does indeed get better. It's Zach to the future. As the New York Post headline says, Joe, thank you very much, folks. That's it for last call for tonight. Really appreciate you joining us every night or listening on the podcast. By the way, we will see you tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older 
like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 